and they certainly ought to do that when we gather together as a church family. Would you find in your New Testament, Revelation chapter number 16, we are in this series that I've entitled, Welcome to the Future. It's our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We're uh, over halfway, we're about two-thirds of the way through, and we are in a sobering passage of Scripture, to say the least. As we come into these, uh, as we come into uh, these latter chapters, we're getting into those very intense passages of Scripture that tell us about the judgment that's coming at the end of the tribulation period. The great tribulation period is going to be a terrible time anyway. But as you go through, we mentioned last week, as you go through the scroll judgments and the seal judgments, rather, and then the trumpet judgments, and now we're talking about these bowl or vial judgments, they just grow in intensity. And they're unimaginable, the things that come on, uh, that come on this planet during this time. When Jesus, back in chapter 5, received that seven-sealed scroll, We noted that really what he was doing was receiving the title. He was taking the title deed of the earth from the Father. Uh, The Bible says in Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. And, And so Jesus is reclaiming the earth during the tribulation period, but he's going to take seven years to do it. By the time we come to Revelation chapter number 16, the world has been struggling under God's wrath for nearly seven years. Terrible uh, plagues or, or judgments have been poured out on the planet. The Antichrist is growing not only in popularity but in power and the time of Jacob's trouble now is coming to an end. God's going to conclude his judgment on the planet with these last three bowls um, that we're going to look at today. Uh, the King James Bible calls them vials, V-I-A-L-S, vile judgments we would use the term bowl judgments. Last Sunday night, we had the opportunity, or Sunday morning rather, we had the opportunity to commence our study in the bowl judgments. So today I've entitled this message, Concluding the Bowl Judgments. We'll look at the last, uh, the last three. When these judgments are finished, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is going to return in glory and power to take possession of this world, and then he's going to rule on this planet for 1,000 years. So these last three plagues that we're looking at today are setting the stage for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know that at the beginning of the tribulation period, the Lord began the two-part coming, his his two-part coming. He came and raptured the church. Uh, believers won't be here during the tribulation period. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of all true believers around the globe. He didn't come to the earth, though. You remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. At the end of the tribulation period, he's going to return to the planet. His feet touch down. You remember those passages? His feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Bible says that the Mount splits in two. When her Lord touches down again. We looked at the first four bowl judgments last week. Looking at these last three. These last three judgments or plagues today. They are the culmination of 21 judgments. That God has delivered to the planet. Over this seven year period. And they're terrible. I'll I'll just let's just get this out of the way up front. 
This is a sobering passage of Scripture today when you consider what the Bible says about these last three plagues. And so I'd like us to look at chapter 16, and we're going to begin our reading at verse number 10 this morning. Revelation 16.10 says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Mark verse number 18. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. If you're not a Bible believer, these verses almost sound impossible. They're they're too incredible to believe. Unless you believe that the word of God is true. Unless you believe that every scripture, all scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And if that's your belief, and it certainly is my belief, then those are, those are fearful verses that we just read this morning. I'd like to speak to you today for, for the time we have together on concluding the bold judgments, uh, vials number 5, 6, and 7. We'll discuss in detail the destruction that is implied here and also a stage that is set in that sixth bowl. Let's have a word of prayer and ask God to bless our time together, and then we'll jump right into verses 10 and 11. Father, thank you for your word, and we have been saying this all through this study, that we thank you for telling us what's coming. For some lost people, knowing the, the end that's coming, it may motivate them to be saved. You said some were to be saved with fear plucking them from the fire, and maybe... Maybe it's a fearful heart that will drive people to repent of their sins and come to Christ. Lord, for those of us that are Christians, this scripture does a couple of things. It reminds us again of your amazing grace that has saved us 
and we've been delivered from your wrath, and we don't have to face these things because you took our punishment for sin. But Lord, I also pray that these times that we're spending in the book of Revelation would motivate Christians to be free with the gospel, to share it with lost people, friends or family or strangers, telling people how they can miss all of this, how they can have sins forgiven, and they can go to heaven instead of hell when they die. So we take your word today uh, and ask, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit's ministry, help our understanding, help us to clarify these things. And, Lord, we, we uh, trust that he, the Holy Spirit, will be our guide into all truth, and we want to rightly divide it. So I pray for you to protect my mind today, help it to stay on track, help me to speak clearly and to communicate to our church family here and to those joining us on live stream uh, your truth. And then, Lord, we're going to trust that you will do with your word in our hearts what you intend to do. We're not meant to just gather all this knowledge. You have purpose for us to change us and to cause a change of life in us because of what we know from your word. So help us to willingly do that. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's start first uh, and look what happens here in these, these bold judgments. Three plagues this morning, so three, uh, three points or three main thoughts. The first one is this. In verses 10 and 11, the Bible says that the beast is plagued. The beast is plagued. Um, the dragon is mentioned here and the beast and the false prophet. We know that the dragon is the devil. He is called that throughout the scripture. We know that the beast is the antichrist. Scripture says that many antichrists are going to come and they have come in the past. There may be more before the antichrist uh, rears his ugly head. But the beast talked about here is of course the capital A antichrist. In verse number 10, it says that this fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his, the Antichrist's kingdom, was full of darkness and they, the people in his kingdom, gnawed their tongues for pain. So let's start with, uh, in this particular plague, let's start with the locality of it. The locality. It says at the first part of verse 10 that it has been poured out on his seat. Up until now, let's, let's make this observation, that up until now, the beast hasn't really been the target of God's judgment. All of the things that we've talked about, these terrible happenings on the earth through the seven-year period, all of them have really affected the cities and the people, and, and in some cases, the earth itself. But the beast hasn't really been under God's direct attack until now. And it says that this fifth bowl is poured, up, poured out upon the seat of the beast, where he resides. We know through the scriptural study that ancient Babylon is going to be rebuilt and it's going to be his capital. The Antichrist will make ancient Babylon, now in the modern day country of Iraq, he will make Babylon his capital. So this darkness that is poured out uh, starts there in Babylon, but then it says it's poured out on his seat, but then it spreads to his whole kingdom. So the locality discussed is it starts apparently in rebuilt Babylon, but it spreads throughout the whole kingdom. That's the locality of it. The second thing is, the second part of verse 10 talks about the light being darkened. The light being darkened. Darkness, it says, engulfs his kingdom. And it's not a, it's not a darkness like we would experience at night. It seems to be an absolute thick 
darkness. Do you remember during the Egyptian plagues when darkness came into the land of Egypt, not the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were dwelling, just the land of Egypt? Seems to be the same type of thing. And it says, did you note that in verse 10? It says that his kingdom will be full of darkness. When I say a cup is full, this cup's almost full. It's not quite full. But if I were to say this cup is absolutely full, that would mean it couldn't hold any more water that's in there. This is saying it can't can't get any darker in the kingdom of the Antichrist than it's going to be. It's going to be full of darkness. I can't imagine a darkness like that. We took a we took a trip one time over here, you know, south or north of Chattanooga. We went into that cave to see the lost sea. Remember that? You ever go down there? Ever have them shut those lights off? Boy, that's black. I mean, I've been on dark nights when the sun's, you know, the, the moon's not shining, clouds are out, stuff like that. It doesn't get a whole lot blacker than that cave down there at the Lost Sea when they kill every light. And when we were there, I mean, nobody had cell phones. You know, there was no light down there at all. And when they hit that thing, there was a collective gasp. It's just startling. You can do this all you want, and, and there's, there's nothing there. You have no idea how close your hand is to your face. The Bible says it's going to be darker than that. I don't know how that would happen, but it is. It says that his kingdom is going to be absolutely full of darkness. Nothing's going to penetrate it. Now, how that physically happens, I'm confessing this to you, I have no idea. How physically that happens in regards to the sun, moon, and stars, that this darkness comes to the kingdom of the Antichrist, and the Bible says it's full of darkness. I don't know how that works. I do know up there in Alaska at certain times of the year, they go for a long period of time where the sun doesn't come up. But it's not completely black because they have the moon and the stars and the northern lights. But here it's full of darkness. Whatever causes it, that darkness is going to be severe. Did you know this is not the first time that's mentioned in Scripture? You can write down Joel chapter 2 and verse 2 where the prophet writes this. He's describing the day of the Lord, and this is what he says. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it. Have you noticed, by the way, this is just a little side note. Have you noticed how many times since we've been talking about the tribulation period We have heard the scripture say, there's never been anything like this before. Have you noticed, we come across that all the time in the book of Revelation or in the Old Testament prophecies that concern this same time period. There's a lot of times that the Holy Spirit says, you ain't never seen nothing like this. So when we try to discuss, how can this part of the world, how can the kingdom of the Antichrist, how can it be just absolutely dark? And so that no one can see, how does that work? I I don't know. But scripture is telling us it's never happened before, so we don't know. John Phillips, in his commentary, Exploring Revelation, says this, Since men have chosen the powers of darkness as their spiritual guides and have scorned the light of the world, God gives them what they want. Darkness, thick darkness, a darkness like that of Egypt, which could be felt. They rejected the light that was Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm coming into the world. I've come to give light. I am the light. Mankind said, no, thank you. And so God here is literally giving them what they wanted. The world chose moral and spiritual and intellectual and emotional darkness over the light that is Jesus Christ, 
And since the scripture says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, God says, then you can have all the darkness you want. In fact, you can have more than you want. Do you remember when Israel wanted to, when Israel wanted to worship idols? God said, you want, you want to mess around with idolatry? I'll put you for seven decades in the very heart of idolatry. And he, said, he let them go captive into Babylon. Remember that? Did you know that after Judah was delivered from Babylon, you never read in scripture again that Judah struggled with idolatry? Be careful what you ask for. It's kind of like the dog chasing the car. What are you going to do when you catch that car? You might catch it, but you're not going to want it. And that's what's going, that is exactly what's going on here. And when, when this darkness descends, and I don't understand this, maybe it's, maybe it's just going crazy. But the Bible says that men are going to chew their tongues. Can you imagine that? They're going, it, I mean, this is what the scripture says. They nod their tongues for pain. I don't know what drives them to do it. If it's a temporary madness, I'm not sure. They've got an unimaginable pain in them. Remember, in one of the earlier bowl judgments, they're given a sore in their body that the Bible says there's no cure for it. And it is some type of oozing external ulcer that is very painful, non-curable. And this just seems to add to it. I, I bite my tongue every once in a while. You do that? Not on purpose. Well, sometimes on purpose. <laughs> Be honest with you. Sometimes that is on purpose. But when you're chewing and enjoy, is that not the world's worst when you're chewing and enjoying something really good and then you bite your tongue and all of a sudden all the joy that you were experiencing is just gone. Oh my goodness, I can't imagine chewing on my tongue to distract me from the darkness that's engulfed my world. And yet that, that's this plague. I, I think the wording here is interesting. I this is just me. I think it's a clear foreshadowing of hell. Hell is going to be pitch black. For those people that say, well, most of my friends are not Christians and they're going to hell, so I'm, I'm going to probably just do the same thing. I got bad news for you. You will never see your friends again. And Matthew 25 verse 30 says that hell is a place of outer darkness where men gnash their teeth together. There, there's just some parallels here. There's some similarity in this last or one of these last plagues to hell as God foreshadows for these people what's coming up for them soon. So this light is going to be darkened. Let me just pause here and remind you of this. And we, I, I have to say this every once in a while. Hell is a real place. And there are real people in hell. Don't turn your back on the light of Christ. Hell is, not being, hell is not a metaphor that you find in Scripture. It's not a picture of anything. It is as geographically real, even more real than Jefferson City, Tennessee. Because one day, Jefferson City, Tennessee is going to be completely changed in the geography. We're going to talk about that here in just a few moments. But hell is the same place forever and ever and ever. The only thing that changes in hell is that it is progressively getting fuller. It's eternal in its character. Don't reject the light of Jesus Christ. 
So the locality is discussed. This fifth bowl is poured out on the seat of the Antichrist, it says. The light is darkened. And what is the lesson? In verse number 11, what is the lesson that we should learn here? In chapter 16 and verse 11, it says, They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not for their deeds. With such terrible suffering going on, we saw that in the first four bowls, we talked about how intense and and terrible they were. You're thinking at some point these people surely will turn and repent. They know these plagues are coming from God. Surely they're going to repent and seek forgiveness but not these people. This is the second time in this chapter that it's telling us. Verse 11 is the second time in this chapter, in this series of seven judgments. It's the second time that it says they're not going to repent. And the Bible's going to say this again uh, in just a few more verses. They're not going to repent. This is quite the window, I think, into the human heart, don't you? How can they be going through these things? Supernatural plagues pummeling the earth in wave after wave after wave, and yet they will not turn to God. Some people believe that mankind is sinful, but there's still a spark of the divine in them. I'm telling you there's not. The lesson here is this, that humanity is absolutely sinful. We are absolutely sinful. The Bible uses the word depraved. There's not a spark of God in all people. There isn't. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. Spiritually, before Christ, I was dead in sins. You understand dead. There's, it's dead. It's dead. That's like telling a baseball glove to catch a ball. It's it's not going to happen. You were dead in trespasses and sin, the Bible says. But now God's quickened us and made us alive. Thank the Lord. But this points to the absolute sinfulness. We, We don't have time this morning to turn there. But you can read Romans 3, verses 10 through 23. And it talks about the depth of our sin. They are all gone out of the way. There is none Righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short. Verse after verse after verse, God's saying, you need help. The lesson to take away from from this first thing where this darkness comes and these people are blaspheming God in the face of it, the lesson to take away is that uh, humanity is absolutely sinful. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 says, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt. It's got to be changed. Something has to be changed here. Even though these folks are, they are confronted with God's overwhelming power, his terrible wrath, they will not repent. True Bible salvation requires divine intervention. That's Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. That concludes by saying, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, It doesn't matter how good you and I are. We can't earn heaven. We are saved by grace through faith. When we read about this blasphemy, let's just pause here and take a, we have to take a humility pill every once in a while when we're reading about people like this, don't we? So let's take a humility pill. 
Without the grace of God in my life, I would be just like these people. I would blaspheme God. I would reject his work. I would reject his call. Without God's grace being pointed toward me, I'm no different, nor are you, than the folks we're reading about here. Remember that what we are, Paul said, we are what we are by the grace of God. And I'm thankful for that grace. And the more I read the book of Revelation, the more I appreciate the absolutely amazing grace of God that was extended to me. Titus 2 said it has been, his mercy has been shed abundantly on us. I love the way it, it says that. Thank God for that. But these folks in this passage, they want nothing to do with God. Not only are they rejecting him, they continue, the Bible says in, in verse 9, they blaspheme his name. And now it tells us again in verse number 11, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains. And it ends up just like verse number 9 did, they repented not of their deeds. Did, we've talked about this guy a lot recently, but he, he just keeps coming to my mind as we look at this. Even in hell... The rich man of Luke number Luke chapter 16 doesn't ask God to deliver him. He's still defiant in hell. Wouldn't you think if he weren't defiant, wouldn't you think the rich man, you remember the story of rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus the beggar, the rich man, the Bible says, fared sumptuously every day. He ate like a pig. We got taken out to dinner last night, and it was ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. The Bible says this rich man in Luke 16 ate like that every day. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, and, and the next sentence is not, and he begged God to be delivered from hell. Wouldn't you think if you were burning in hell that you'd say, God, won't you save me now? Wouldn't you at least ask that once? That rich man didn't. All he said was, can I just have a drop of water? What a terrible condemnation. To be, to be sentenced to hell forever. But there's that, there's that rich man. No hint of remorse, just like these folks in, in Revelation chapter 16. There, there's no hint of remorse at all. In fact, not only will they not repent, they go so far as to blaspheme God and blaspheme his name. What a terrible plague. Uh, a terrible plague here. So the first thing is this. The beast is plagued. And he's plagued with this terrible darkness. That's bowl number five. Then bowl number six comes up in, verse, in uh, verses 12 through 16. So let's look at those verses. A battle is planned. A battle is planned. John MacArthur makes an interesting observation when we talk about the sixth vial here, the sixth bowl. He says this in his book, and if you don't have the book, I would recommend you get, Because the Time is Near. It is a wonderful book on the book of Revelation. John MacArthur's Because the Time is Near. He writes in that book and says this, Unlike the previous five bulls, the sixth has no specific assault on humanity, but prepares for what is to come. So when you read about the sixth bowl in verses 12 through 16, nothing bad happens on the planet except a river dries up. But it's fully in preparation for something coming down the pike. Verse number 12 says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that, way of the, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The sixth bowl is setting the stage 
for the battle of Armageddon. That's the whole purpose of the sixth judgment. It's just to make the battle of Armageddon more possible for these kings of the east. The Euphrates River is an impressive river. 1,800 miles long. It starts at the foot of Mount Ararat where Moses's, or, or Noah's boat stopped. Moses' boat. Noah's ark. But let me just tell you a story. I, that just reminded me of something. You confused Moses and Noah. Uh, I was, we were talking to a guy one time, and he was telling us when he was in Bible college, a friend of his went and got a tattoo, and he wanted a tattoo of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. So this is a true story. I'm not making this up. So he got a tattoo on his shoulder of Moses holding the two tablets. And he came back to the Bible college with a bunch of Bible college students who, by the way, know far more than you or I do. I'm just letting you know. And uh, he walks in, and he's showing off his new tattoo. And this is a true story. He, he shows off this new tattoo. This guy standing there, big, long beard, holding two tablets. And one of the guys says, dude, that's not Moses. That's Noah. Now let that sink in for a minute. Does anyone in here know how Noah differs in appearance than Moses does? You know, The guy freaked out. He's like, oh, man, how did they put Noah holding the Ten Commandments? So my little confusion of Moses and Noah, there's a subliminal reason for that. What were we talking about? The Euphrates River. You need a little bit of lightheartedness when you're coming through Revelation 16, don't you? This 1,800-mile-long river, some places it's just a few feet wide. Some places it's a half a mile wide. It's an impressive river. It goes all the way from Turkey, then uh, through Syria, then through Iraq, and it empties out into the Persian Gulf. It's 1,800 miles long. The Bible says this sixth angel comes and pours out its vial, and the judgment on the earth here is for this river that in Scripture divides the east from the west. It dries this river up. Now, I, I have to admit something else to you here. And you may have already caught this. I don't know how there's water in the Euphrates at this point. Because if you remember, one of the previous bowl judgments was that all of the fresh water in the world turned to blood. So somehow the Euphrates is now at this point back to water. And the Bible says this, uh, the Bible says this river is dried up. And the waters, and it's very clear, isn't it? The waters dried up. I fall back on this. The book of Revelation, and we've mentioned this a couple times so far, and sometimes it can get a little confusing. The book of Revelation is not written chronologically from chapter 1 to chapter number 22. So I can't tell you exactly when this river dries up. It may have dried up before the waters were turned to blood. And I'm not, I'm not denigrating the scripture at all, and I'm not trying to add confusion to you. I just know that you're aware of this already. We've already seen where we were at this part of the tribulation. Then we went forward to this part of the tribulation. Then next thing we knew, we were back at this part of the tribulation. It's just not written chronologically. So my explanation would be that perhaps this judgment, this particular judgment, is not, uh, has not taken place when, uh, it took place rather before the waters were turned to blood. I don't know. 
Now, if that's not true, it doesn't change my theology at all. It won't change your theology at all. I just don't, ex- I don't know how to explain that in a previous bowl judgment, all of the fresh waters in the world, and the Bible is very clear on this, were turned to blood. And yet it says in verse number 12 that the water of the river Euphrates dries up. The point is this. At some point, the waters of the mighty Euphrates River is going to dry, it's going to dry up. And so it, the purpose of that, it says, is, is that the kings of the east, might, the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So they're going to make it, this is going to make it so that people can pass over the Euphrates River much easier than they can today. No bridges required. Let's talk about what's going on here because this is a battle. This, the reason this is drying up is for this battle that's being planned. Verse number 12, first of all, notice the armies. There is a huge eastern army that's going to use this dry river to advance toward the, Israel, the Israeli armies and the armies of the Antichrist. Keep this in mind. The Bible never says that the kings of the east are allies of the Antichrist. In fact, it might be that they're adversaries to Antichrist. One of the reasons they may be heading west and coming toward Israel is to fight Antichrist because they're rejecting his rule of the entire world. There's a lot of speculation as to who the kings of the east are. In chapter 9 and verse number 16, it talks about an army coming of 200 million people. Now, who do most, uh, some of you, especially those of you with gray hair, who have studied the book of Revelation, you've heard it taught, you've heard it preached, who do most people, who have most people historically said the kings of the east are? Who do they say it is? China. That's because for a long time it was, it was figured out that the only, the only people in the world able to raise a 200 million man army was China. But did you know within just a few years, if it's not happened already, India is going to be bigger than China. Did you know if you take all of the uh, Islamic nations that are east of Israel and on the other side of the Euphrates River, and combined their populations, do you know it's over one billion people? I'm just saying this. We don't know who the kings of the east are yet, but they're coming, and there's a lot of them, 200 million apparently. That's an incredible army. I don't know who this army is. It might be all Chinese. It might be all Indian. It might be the combined Islamic states, but whoever they are, they see the dried up river Euphrates as an opportunity to bring their massive army and advance against their enemies. If their enemies are Israel or the Antichrist or both, they see this as an opportunity to advance. May I tell you something? It's not an opportunity at all. This is a trap. This dried up riverbed is a deadly trap sent by, set by God for this massive army because they're coming to a battle that they have absolutely no chance of winning because they're coming up against an omnipotent Lamb of God. It looks like an opportunity. 
You've seen those. You've seen those things before. If you've ever watched any good World War II movies, where something opens up and all of a sudden the generals are thinking to themselves, "Man, this is a great opportunity." That's exactly what's going to happen here in Revelation 16 when they see this river gone. Now all of a sudden they can move their armor and their and their uh, troops all across this river, up and down an 1,800-mile-wide open gate. But it's a trap. It's a trap. So that's the armies. You know what I think about when I think about that? By the way, I think of what Pharaoh must have thought when he saw the Red Sea parted open and dried and everything. He said, well, this is a great opportunity. I can go right after Israel. I can take care of business. We all know how that worked out. It was a trap. Well, this is on a much larger scale. So first, in verse 12, you have the armies talked about there. In verses 13 and 14, the antagonists. The antagonists. This is a bizarre, I'll just give it to you. This is a bizarre two verses right here. You saw that the first time we read it. It says in verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the ant, uh, out of the mouth of the false prophet they are spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God almighty the antagonists there's these three unclean spirits that and note that would you it says they come out like frogs and they come out of the mouths of the unholy trinity satan the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Not literal frogs, but the Bible's clear. It says they're like frogs. This was written by a Jew to generally a Jewish community, and frogs are an unclean animal to the Jew. And so when he says they come out like frogs, part of that implication is these are absolutely unclean. Jews were not to touch frogs. And they come out... And they uh, are miracle, the Bible tells us in these two verses, they are miracle-working demons. And they are sent out to seduce the kings of the east and all of the world to come to Armageddon. That's their job. You ever wonder why all these armies are coming toward Armageddon? What's drawing everybody? Seems like somebody would sit back, you know what, let's just them duke it out with each other and then we'll take whatever's left. But nope, here come all of the kings of the world. And the job of these three frog-like demons is to go out and convince them to come to, really, to come to their destruction at Armageddon. But they're tricking them. I don't know what they're saying to them. I don't know what seeds of thought they're planting. But they're deceiving these leaders of the world to bring their army to this place in northern Israel called Megiddo. And then there's an announcement in verse number 15. <clears throat> kind of, did, did you, as we read through that, and I did that on purpose, read verses 10 through 21. Did you think that verse number 15 was a bit of an interruption? Does it read like in, in sequence, you know, out of the out of left field comes this thing where all of a sudden we're talking about frogs and demons and darkness and rivers drying up. And then, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There's this announcement here. This is actually the third of what one writer called the seven Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. In Revelation, there are seven times when the Bible says, blessed are they or blessed is he. 
The first one is in chapter 1 and verse 3, and then chapter 14 and verse 13. Here's the third one in chapter 16, then 19.9, chapter 20 and verse 6, chapter 22 and verse 7, chapter 22 and verse 14. You have the seven Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. Even as Jesus, even as Jesus was ascending back to heaven, back in Acts chapter 1, you remember it says that his return was being prophesied. He's going up. The apostles are caught off guard, and they're standing there looking, and those two angels show up, and they say, don't you know that he's going to return just like he ascended? Why are you gazing up here? Seven years before Revelation 16 takes place, Jesus did come in the air, and he raptured the church, but now one day he's going to come back. And this verse, verse number 15, is talking about his return when he touches down on the Mount of Olives. And here, this is what I think. I could be wrong on this. This is an encouragement to those tribulation saints that are going to be saved during the tribulation period. This is an encouragement to them saying, just hold on a little longer. I am coming back. Keep the faith. Don't believe the Antichrist. I'm coming as a thief. I'm coming quickly and I'm coming unexpectedly when I come and I'm bringing judgment with me. Stay the course here. Keep the faith right in the middle of this. The world is not going to see the signs of Christ's second coming. They're not going to be ready for it. But scripture is telling those tribulation saints, be ready. Be ready when I come. God's people can know it. You know, we're, we're counting on that today as we await, as believers today, await the rapture of the church. We're counting on the signs. We're counting on the things when it says, when, when, when the Bible says things like, well, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, when you see children turning against their parents, when natural disasters are increasing both in frequency and intensity, look up. For your redemption draweth nigh. Those of us that know scripture and we're watching world events and we're listening to what's being said by world leaders and by so-called church leaders, we're a little bit rocking on ready. Boy, this is getting close. Jesus is going to come soon for his church. Well, that's where they're at in the tribulation period. And I think this pause right here in tribulation, in this text during the tribulation Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. You know the Bible talks about remaining unspotted. Stay pure, stay true, stay faithful, count on it. You have the the armies, you have these antagonists, these demons coming out. Then you have this announcement, stay faithful. And then look what it says in verse number 16, you have this assembly. An assembly, by the way, that's drawn together by Satan himself. Verse number 16, the Bible says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. He gathered them together. This army that's being assembled by Satan so he can destroy Israel. He thinks that he's calling all of these together. He thinks he's in control. But I, I want you to notice that little, that little word he in verse number 16, the second word in your Bible. That he is God. Did you see what it says in verse number, at the end of verse number 14, this battle that's coming, it's called that great day of God Almighty. And now it says he 
is drawing them to this place. He gathered them together. He's the architect of these events, drawing them to this little place out in the the plain of Esdralon. It's called Megiddo in Scripture. Old Testament, it shows up a lot. It's about 60 miles north and barely east of Jerusalem. In fact, you know what's right near there? Mount Carmel. The Mount Carmel, remember where Elijah slew all those false prophets? It overlooks the valley of Megiddo. It's all up in that same area. It has, that area has a bloody history. I just jotted down three or four things. Do you remember that story? Um, Do you remember that story of Barak and Deborah? That's a weird story, right? That dude gets a nail drove through his head. Remember that? That story? That took place in Judges 4 and 5. That took place in the valley of Megiddo. When Gideon defeated the Midianites in the next few chapters of the book of Judges, that took place in Megiddo. When Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle, that took place in the valley of Megiddo. When uh, Josiah, godly king Josiah, he had a lapse in judgment, Second Chronicles 35, and he was killed in battle, the valley of Megiddo. That place has a bloody history already. John Phillips says this again about, about this assembly that's coming together. He says, east against west, west against east, all against God. Perhaps the nations of the east think that they can wrestle the world empire from the Antichrist. Perhaps the beast thinks he can rechannel some of the martial ardor of the eastern powers into some kind of confrontation with heaven, which is now drawing too close for anyone's comfort. In any case, the nations coming here are deluded by the permissive will of God, and they converge on Armageddon. They're all coming. This is a dramatic scene that's being established. River Euphrates is dried up. Doors are opened now for these armies to get here. Now keep this in mind. The battle of Armageddon is not part of the sixth judgment. The preparation for Armageddon is the sixth judgment. It's just the river drying up. We're going to talk about that battle. If we ever do make it to Revelation chapter 19, we're going to talk about the battle of Armageddon. So first of all, the beast is plagued, and then a battle is planned, and then you come finally to verses 17 through 21, and it talks about Babylon being plundered. Babylon being plundered. The seventh bowl comes out, and this is the awful wrath of God uh, being poured out on the world. It's the final judgment. Out of the 21 judgments over the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and now the bowl judgments, this is the final judgment. And the world is absolutely destroyed in this. John, the same guy who wrote down the words of the revelation, John said this, don't love this world. Don't love the things of the world. Why would he say that? Because they're not going to last. And this last bowl judgment tells you why. This is a devastating judgment. Just like the seventh seal judgment and the seventh trumpet judgment, this judgment begins with a violent thunderstorm. But those first two were just a, they were just uh, previews of what's coming here. Look at verse number 17. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne. 
saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was, no, there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. What happened as a result of that? The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. The great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found." All of that is the result of this earthquake. Let's look quickly at these verses and then we'll be done. The first thing is this. There's a sentence rendered in verse number 17. God says this. It is done. He doesn't say here it is finished. He says it is done. Judgment is now coming to an absolute end. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to the planet. He's going to reclaim everything that was lost when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Everything's going back to the way it used to be. He's coming to make all things new. When Jesus was on the cross and when he was buying our redemption, there he said, it's finished. And he announced a victory. Here, he says from heaven, it's done, and he's announcing a verdict. And the earthquake that is coming, it is just absolutely stunning what happens here. God is putting them on notice. It is done. You ever had your dad say that when you were a kid? He'd warned you about two or three times. And you hear dad say, that's it. You just think life is about to end, don't you? When dad said that is it, that's generally what is being said here. That is it. They've been blaspheming him. They've been blaspheming his son's name. They've been refusing to repent. It is done. And then the Bible talks about not just that sentence rendered. Verses 18 through 21 talks about a system that is ruined. A system that's ruined. He's been judging the earth. We've seen these these judgments coming in waves, and they've, they've been terrible. Uh, no one is repenting. They're still shaking their fist in God's face in, in defiance. They're not responding to these at all. And so in one final stroke, God is going to remove all of the things that man can boast about in one judgment. And it's in this earthquake. I, I'm just going to outline these 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 things with the word destruction as we make our way from verse 16 down. Let's just talk about destruction, all right? In verse number 16, first of all, there's destruction from below. Did you know that on our little planet, we have about 2 million earthquakes per year, 8,000 per day, most of which are not even recognized by us. It takes a machine to figure them out. 8,000 earthquakes per day. Now, some earthquakes, and some of you may even remember some of them, they've brought terrible loss of life and and terrible damage. They are classified. I learned this this last week doing my studies on earthquakes because it said this earthquake's coming like nothing we've ever seen. Well, let's learn a little bit about earthquakes. Earthquakes are classified from micro to rarely great. The micro are less than two on the Richter scale, and those are the ones we average about 7,800 to 8,000 per day. The rarely great register nine or above on the Richter scale, and we have one of those about every 20 years or so. One of the most recent that we had, as far as the devastation goes, took place on December 26, 2004, 
And you remember that earthquake took place below the Indian Ocean. It didn't cause a lot of damage there. But what that did cause, do you remember that tidal wave? My goodness, Asia just got slammed. Almost 230,000 people dead. The damage was almost incalculable of the loss of not just uh, facilities, but infrastructure and everything else. To create a tidal wave like it did that far away, some people much smarter than I tried to determine what kind of, let's, let's relate it to an atomic bomb. What type of earthquake would have created that tidal wave? So I'm going to explain this. As, on paper, I get this, but I really don't know how all that works. From 1945 to 1992, there were 520 nuclear tests conducted on our planet. From 1945 to 1992, there were 520 nuclear tests conducted on our planet. That's by us, the Russians, the Chinese, the Indians, the Israelis, whoever. Those 520 tests yielded 510.4 megatons. You with me so far? I have no idea what I'm reading. I'm just reading it like it says. But I can compare numbers to numbers. I don't know what a megaton is, but all of the nuclear testing, including the two nuclear bombs that we dropped on Japan, all of those combined created 510.4 megatons. Scientists have determined that the earthquake that caused that tsunami on December 26, 2004, almost equaled all of that nuclear testing, 475 megatons. That's, I don't know how to measure a megaton, but that's impressive because I've seen the results of those atomic bombs. And you're telling me that in just a matter of minutes, however long that earthquake lasts, it produced nearly as much of all of the nuclear testing that took place in over 40 years. The Bible says we've yet to see an earthquake like the one that's coming. He, MacArthur said that this earthquake will be the worst calamity in the world's history. That, that includes the flood. Would you think about that for a second? He said the worst calamity in the world's history. Destruction from below. The devastation is going to be incredible. Destruction from below. The destruction of the cities. When this thing's hit, in verse number 19, it says the great city is going to break apart in three parts. That's the city of Jerusalem. The great city, chapter 11, verse 8, calls Jerusalem the great city. That ancient city is going to suffer terrible damages. In fact, Old Testament prophet says when, when this uh, when this earthquake hits, the geography in and around Jerusalem is going to drastically change. But the Bible goes beyond Jerusalem and it says the cities of the world are going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed in minutes. Centers of pleasure, centers of education, centers of entertainment, economics, all of those things. Wall Street, Hollywood, Paris's fashion district, Tokyo's uh, Tokyo's electronic world, all the, the cities of the world, the Bible says are going to come down in a moment of time. This is an, an, 
an unimaginable earthquake. Destruction from below, destruction of the cities, destruction of Babylon in verse number 19. Apparently, and this has more, we'll say more about this in chapter 17 and 18, but the city of Babylon, which has been rebuilt by Antichrist, is going to be destroyed as long as well as the city that comes along with uh, the system rather that comes along with Babylon it's going to devastate that city even more than the rest of the world the bible singles babylon out and it talks about did you see that in verse 19 the cup of the wine of the fierceness of god's wrath directed at babylon destruction from below destruction of the cities destruction of babylon destruction of the islands and the mountains did you catch that in verse 20 Islands are fled away, mountains are brought to nothing. The world's topography is going to be changed. The continents are going to shift. Islands are going to disappear in massive tsunamis. The mountains are going to crumble and fall. And here's what, here's how most conservative Bible scholars interpret this. The world's geography, or topography rather, will be returned to the way it was before the flood. When God says he makes all things new, that's not a metaphor. Can you imagine? We live in a beautiful part of the world, don't we? What makes our part of the world, our part of the state, what makes it beautiful here? Smoky Mountains. I love waking up and seeing the Clinch Clinch Mountains of the north and the Smoky Mountains of the south. I love doing that. The Bible says they're going away. Jesus is preparing the world for his millennial reign. Then it talks about destruction from above in verse number 21. It talks about these hailstones. We don't measure things today by talents, but talents in John Day, a talent referred to about the weight a man could lift, about the weight a man could reasonably lift, somewhere around 100 pounds. How big is a hailstone if it weighs 100 pounds? Imagine those hailstones Pounding the earth. What wasn't destroyed in the earthquake is going to be destroyed by these massive hailstones. You can't build your roof strong enough to take that. You just can't. Destruction from above. Everything surviving the earthquake is going to be pulverized. If there are any crops left, the farmers farmers hate they hate hail. Hundred pound hailstones. Cars, gone. Structures, gone. Anything of value will be destroyed in the earthquake and by these things. This system in the world, the world's system is absolutely ruined. And then the last part of verse number 21 says that all sinners are going to be truly revealed. It says, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. They can't help themselves, can they? They continually come back to this. This is their response to this terrible judgment. It just proves man's depravity. Romans 2.4. I'm so thankful that I'm going to miss this. I, I, I know I keep coming back to that. Romans 2.4 says it's the goodness of God that led us to repent. Thank God we have his grace and we miss out on all this. Let me wrap this up. You've been very generous in your time this morning. I want to go back to verse number 15 and say again to you that Jesus is coming. He is coming. 
This is a truth. It's not up for debate. It's not a truth that may change according to what happens on the planet. This is a fixed fact already in history. Jesus is coming again. I don't know when. I don't know when the rapture is going to take place. I don't know when the second coming is going to take place. But either way, he is coming. And he has given plenty of warning to us in his word. It's a two-word admonition. Be prepared. Be prepared. So when Jesus begins the process of his second coming, a two-part process, it's the rapture of the church. It's that time when Jesus will come and stop somewhere between heaven and earth, and instantly all of the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That is going to be such an, it's going to happen so quickly, I don't even know that we'll enjoy the flight. (laughs) But it's going to happen. Be prepared. Don't wonder whether or not you're saved. Don't hope that you're going to make it into heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about that kind of hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about this confidence that we have that no matter what happens in this world, we have this hope, this confidence in Christ. Don't hope you're going to heaven. Know it. And Christian, if he's coming soon, why in the world won't we do whatever we can to let those around us know he's coming? Do what you can. It's going to be a terrible place. There has never been a time in in mankind's history that will compare to the seven-year tribulation period. Nothing to compare. God tells us that again and again in his word. You've never seen anything like this before, and there won't be anything like this after. That's how the tribulation period is described. You don't want to be here for that. How do I avoid it? I turn to Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. Isn't that the indictment that's going on here? They would not repent. If they would have just repented. But they wouldn't. How can I miss all of this? I repent of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. And whether I die or whether he raptures, either way, I go to heaven, not hell. And I miss all of this. There are so many benefits to being saved. But one of them is you don't have to mess with the tribulation period. You don't want to be here when it comes. No one in their right mind who thinks God tells the truth, no one in their right mind who believes God tells the truth wants to be here during the tribulation period. I encourage you, if you're not saved, be saved today. If you are saved, live the rest of the time that you have, and who knows how long that is. There may be some in this room today that will be in heaven before this day is over. I don't know. But whatever time you have left on this planet, live it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Make it count in eternity. Would you stand with your heads bowed? Father, this has been a a long message today from a deep passage of Scripture, a heavy passage of Scripture to us, to read about suffering and death and destruction. But they're right in the middle of it, Lord, you... You say that there's a way for us to be blessed, and you remind us that you're coming again, and it's not too late. No one in this room today who is not saved is beyond your grace. And so, Lord, should there be one here today that doesn't know you as Savior, please save them. 
I pray, Father, that Christians today would be encouraged in the great salvation they have. We read these texts, and Lord, they would, they would scare us to death if we thought we were subject to them, but we're not because you've not appointed us to wrath. You've promised us everlasting and eternal life, and you cannot lie, and so these things won't be taken away from us. Lord, we look forward to seeing you one day face to face. Until that happens, we need you to help us to be faithful. Keep our eyes on you and not on this world. It's too easy to get discouraged and distracted. Help us to put our faith and trust in you. I pray this in your name. Amen.